Welcome everyone to tonight's evening with the candidates. Uh, we have with us the four candidates for the Democratic nomination to Attorney General. Uh, my name is Roger Juan Maldonado. I'm the president of the New York City Bar Association. I will be co-moderating uh, tonight's forum together with Susan DeSantis, uh, the a deputy editor for the New York Law Journal. The New York Law Journal and the City Bar Association are co-sponsoring tonight's forum. Um, Susan will actually give an explanation of how we're going to proceed, but I would first like to introduce our, our, the four candidates and to, keep, to make sure that we get to tonight's proceedings quickly, I'm only going to give their names in alphabetical order. <laughs> so we have Leisha Eve, Leticia James, Sean Patrick Maloney, and Zephyr Teachout. Susan? So it's my job to give you the rules. Candidates have been seated in the order determined by lot. There will be no opening statements. We're not taking questions from you, but you suggested the questions, so this is in fact your debate. Our questions will be directed to all the candidates. The first round of questions will have answers limited to two minutes. A second round will be one minute each. Moderators may ask follow-up questions and candidates may respond to other candidates' questions. <coughs> Responses will be limited in that case to 30 seconds. At the end of the questions, there will be an opportunity to provide a brief closing statements with an order again determined by lot. Please limit your statements to two minutes. We have a timer seated in the front row there, Eric Friedman, I'm sure a lot of you know him. Um, he's going to hold up a yellow sign when the candidate has 10 seconds left, a red sign when the candidate's time is up, and of course we expect you to abide by that. Thank you very much. And I am going to ask the first question to Ms. James, yes. who was, again, as I said, determined by a lot. So what I'm interested in is what would be your day one message to staff members? I would assess each and every bureau of the Office of Attorney General to determine the staffing levels. I would also let them know of my priorities. And my priorities include, again, challenging the abuses from Donald Trump, two, going after corruption, three, focusing on all of the issues. I've crisscrossed this state. There are environmental issues. There's uh, issues with respect to uh, gun violence in our state. And there's issues with respect to um, consumer fraud and student debt in the state of New York. Let me also say that there's a fifth candidate in the office. His name is in the room. His name is Keith Wooford in the back. He's a Republican candidate. And I, did, I wanted to make sure that he was identified as well. And that's my two minutes. <laughs> Well, first of all, uh, thank you all for being here on this Tuesday night. Uh, thank you for moderating, and thank you to uh, my opponents. Uh, we have been to many forums together now, have gotten to know each other very, very well, and I really appreciate uh, this is our last week, I think, of forums. There's three this week. And tell everyone I'll be the godmother of your baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you for being here. Um, what I would um, communicate to the incredibly talented staff, and I've been so impressed with the work of the Attorney General's office, is that this job is among the most important, and this office is among the most important legal offices in the country at this moment. 
And because of the context of the moment nationally and locally, the nature of the office necessarily has to rise to new challenges. The first challenge is the direct threat to the rule of law um, posed by Donald Trump, the direct attack on our values across the board. And that means that this office has to become the firewall standing up to Donald Trump, the illegal rollbacks of his administration, but also actively investigate his businesses and foundations, which are here in New York. And the New York Attorney General's office plays a unique role there. Second, because of the ongoing crisis of corruption in Albany, the New York Attorney General's office has to play a key role checking that corruption, investigating, and where necessary, prosecuting, and really leading the charge on cleaning up Albany. Third, very much related to what's happening today with the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, we're facing a changed judiciary. And, and we in this office are going to have to use new legal strategies to face the complex and evolving legal challenges of this moment. Thank you. Mr. Maloney. Well, thank you all for being here. Uh, message number one is, Barbara Underwood, please stay and do any job you want. <laughs> uh, you know, I have, I have been in the White House and I've been in the governor's office when there was a crisis at the top, and I will tell you, it is very, very traumatic for all of the good people there who have committed themselves to that public service and who did nothing wrong. And so the primary job initially is to say to that team, we value you, we respect you, we need you here doing this critical work, and this is going to be the best public interest law firm in the world. This is gonna be a, an office that competes and wins for talent with the Southern District, with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and with every great law firm in this city. And we want the most talented young lawyers coming out of the best schools and the best law firms to see this office as a critical place to contribute to the public good and to hone their legal skills. That's job number one. This is a competition to build a great law firm, first and foremost. In addition to that, the priorities of the office are indeed the extraordinary threats uh, coming from Washington, both holding Trump accountable personally in terms of his campaign and, of course, his personal business activities, but more broadly, the Trump administration and, uh, and, the, and the policies that the administration represents, um, I, I think, um, it, it, almost inarguably, are more radical and more threatening to New York than anything we have seen from previous Republican administrations. And there needs to be a comprehensive strategy on that. There's also a critical priority around public corruption in Albany. This office must demand primary criminal jurisdiction over public corruption in state government. We've never had that in this office. It's long overdue. The next attorney general must insist on it. Uh, it's the kind of thing attorney generals want until they become governor. But that's got to stop. That's got to stop. This office should be the cop on that beat. And finally, there are core functions of this office, consumer protection, securities enforcement, antitrust, all the bread and butter work, the scandals you don't know about, the conflicts you don't see that this office must unearth, and that's where I would focus. Thank you. Ms. Eve. Well, first of all, thank you to the New York Law Journal and the New York City Bar Association for hosting this and for all of you in the room and those who are watching online today and in the future. The first thing that I would say, and I believe the most important message to the staff is simply, first and foremost, to say thank you. To say thank you for your extraordinary work at an unprecedented time in our state and in our nation's history. 
when the challenges are greater than they have ever been in my 54 years. This is an organization of extraordinarily talented lawyers and support teams who I know every day get up going to work trying to do their utmost to make this state more fair and more just for all New Yorkers. And that role has become even more important given the assault by the President of the United States on all of the rights that we hold dear and that so many New Yorkers, so many people before us fought so hard to achieve. So I would first and foremost say thank you. And then I would listen and hear from them about how best as the new Attorney General, I can support them so that that work continues. My message in terms of the work will be, we have two critical priorities. Fighting back and leaving no stone unturned against the assault on our rights, but also taking care of business at home. We must use every tool imaginable and available at our disposal to root out corruption so that we can restore the faith in government that has been lost by too many New Yorkers. And that we have a long list of priorities, which I, as Attorney General, will make unequivocally clear that we must champion for all New Yorkers. That includes making our criminal justice system more fair, making our democracy stronger by having stronger voting protections, and doing our utmost to protect all New Yorkers and our environment and our natural resources. Um, first of all, let me correct for the record that my co-moderator is the deputy editor-in-chief of the New York Law Journal. Um, in light of the answers given by the candidates to the previous question, I'm going to modify the question that I was uh, going to ask. I was going to ask you, what's more important, resisting federal policies or making sure that New York's own governing house is in order? You can ask, answer that question, but in doing so, also save enough time to also answer putting the Trump administration outside of the equation. What would be your top issue that must be dealt with? So with those uh, questions, first, Ms. Teachout. Well, thank you. I actually see these issues as profoundly connected. Um, we have, I, I'm an anti-corruption expert. I've spent my life um, researching and fighting against corruption. In fact, um, a week after Donald Trump took office, um, I laid out the case that he was on the verge of violating the emoluments clause. And after that, working with a top team of lawyers, ended up filing suit three days after uh, he took office. I, I, sorry, a week after he was elected, uh, laid out this strategy. And I do think, I do take the, the threat of Donald Trump incredibly seriously. I do also take the threat of our own failure to deal with corruption scandals at home seriously. And one of the, the things that connects them is money in politics. Uh, we really do have to address the deep rot of a big money in politics. I'm the only candidate who isn't taking corporate money, um, either corporate PAC money or LLC money in this race. Um, but then we have this, as I was saying earlier, this changing shape of changing needs going forward. I'll just use consumer protection as one example. There's seven different agencies, federal agencies responsible for consumer protection. Donald Trump and the Republicans are gutting all of them right now, all of them. 
So what that means is that the New York State Attorney General's Office needs to be crafting new legal strategies and really leading the fight to protect on clean air and water against um, uh, financial fraud and scams across the board, filling in the gap that we're really seeing at the federal um, level. And the, and the spine that I see connecting all these and my fourth priority, which is really leading the fight to end mass incarceration, um, ending cash bail, discovery reform, is that we focused, we have to really rethink um, uh, who we're putting in jail. <laughs> The wrong people are in jail right now, a greater focus on white collar crime, and a greater understanding of the role that money in politics plays in our legal system. Mr. Maloney. Uh, well, thank you for that question. I also uh, see that as something of a false choice, although I do think if you listen to the campaign, you might think all of your problems start and stop with Donald Trump or with campaign finance reform. I don't think that's practical. I think those of us who have been doing this work out in the field uh, will tell you that when you're dealing with a family that's lost someone to the opioid epidemic, um, that's an issue about whether you're going to hold those companies accountable for cleaning up this mess. Whether you're dealing with health care, the question is whether you're going to right now insist on the rights this state has under existing federal law. Are you talking about net neutrality? What is this office going to do? Is that getting our own house in order or is that the Trump administration? I think it's both. I do think whether you're talking about criminal justice reform, there's a critical role this office plays, but it's not just, it's not just telling someone else who has the authority what to do, it's finding the resources and tools in the office to fund prison education programs. I have three formerly incarcerated people who are on my team. How does this office actually direct civil asset forfeiture funds to do something about that problem, not just talk about it. I think that whether you're talking about immigration and keeping dreamers in the country, whether you're talking about keeping kids uh, from being separated from their parents, whether you're talking about families like mine that right now are being prevented from adopting children, that is both getting our own lives and, and rights um, uh, as a priority, but also fighting back against this administration. So I think in area after area, whether you're talking about health care or the environment or a woman's right to choose, I don't know how to separate the priorities from New York families in a very real and practical way from the threats I see coming from the Trump administration. But I will tell you that it is absolutely important to have someone do this job for a few years without blowing up in a scandal. That's getting your own house in order. I think it'd be great if somebody just did the work like Barbara Underwood does and is a little less worried about the next office they're going to run for or the next press conference they're going to have. I'm very troubled by the idea that someone will do this job with a political or an ideological agenda and tell you ahead of time the prosecutions that the office is going to bring. Uh, that runs counter to a lot, of the, a lot of the ethics and standards I think most lawyers think are important. So I, th I hope the person would follow the facts and the law uh, in the first instance. But I do, believe, I do believe that we should get our own house in order absolutely so that we can be an example to the country at a time when the federal government is such a bad one. Ms. Eve. I believe it's a false choice. There are thousands of New Yorkers right now whose constitutional right to a speedy trial is being violated, who have been arrested and they're in pretrial detention and they're not out simply because they don't have the money to get out. They're not focused on whether they're there because of Donald Trump's policies or because the state of New York doesn't have its act together. All they know that they are that they are a victim of an unjust system. I am the product of the public school system in New York. 
And yes, I'm a graduate of Harvard Law School, but the foundation for me being able to graduate from Harvard Law School is a quality public school education that the state's highest court, that I proudly served for for two years, said that every child in this state is entitled, I would, untitled, I would argue morally entitled, but the state's highest court said they were constitutionally entitled to receive that public school education. And we have thousands of children across our state who are not receiving what the state's highest court said they are constitutionally entitled to receive. That is a function in part because we have a secretary of education who is more interested in using resources to help armed teachers than she is educating public school children. But that's also a function of our house not being in order. So I believe it's a false choice. We are the greatest state and the greatest nation on earth. We should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, fight against bad policies emanating from Washington, and get our act together and address the needs that cry out from New Yorkers across the state for us to address yesterday. Ms. James. It's a Hobson's choice. I've traveled to Buffalo, and there's lead poisoning in Buffalo. I've traveled to Newburgh. They're challenging the EPA on the fact that their water is poisoned. I found, I've, challenged, I've traveled to uh, the mid-Hudson region where individuals concerned about consumer fraud and student fraud. I've traveled to Long Island and Dix Hills and Brentwood where they're dumping environmentally on communities of color. I've traveled to Albany where eight black men have been shot. I've traveled to Syracuse uh, where gun violence is a major issue. My priorities, uh, again, include making sure that we have states' rights and that we harden our system, and that we, again, examine all of our laws in the state of New York to ensure that our rights are protected. And that includes making sure that the Clean Air Act is enforced, and the Clean Water Act is enforced, the Clean Power, and, uh, Clean Power is enforced, going after the NRA because it is a criminal enterprise, making sure that we stand up for immigrants who are now hiding in the corners, afraid to go to work, afraid to go to school, hiding in the shadows against this administration. What we need is someone with experience and someone who has consistently and repeatedly spoken truth to power and someone who understands at this point in time, our democracy is under attack. This is not an academic exercise. We need someone with practical experience and someone who walked the corridors of a school that turned a mirror on this country and someone that once again has studied the Constitution and recognized that uh, in his historically the rights of people of color were violated. And now it appears that the rights of all of us are being violated, and we need a, a strong fighter in that regard. And so as the next Attorney General, it's critically important that everything is at stake at this point. What's the most important case you've argued in court? What impact has it had on what kind of Attorney General you'd be? If not a case, you can substitute a policy or regulatory in initiative. This first goes to Mr. Maloney. Sure. Well, you're talking to somebody who spent years at Wilkie Farr and Gallagher. I was a partner at Kirkland and Ellis and at Ora Carrington. So, um, you know, when you're at when you're at really good law firms, they don't they don't uh, they don't let you near a lot of courtrooms. But uh, lawyers can get that joke. But, but the, the the fact is is that I've I've got uh, um, certainly as much legal experience, practical legal experience as anybody on the stage. I focused in my early part of my career on investigative work. I'm very proud of the fact that I ran an investigation of the CEO of a major bank on behalf of an independent committee of the board, went on for most of a year, uh, held the CEO accountable for some very serious wrongdoing. 
uh, I worked on congressional investigations. I worked on the independent counsel's investigations. I served uh, as the White House Staff Secretary for three years and saw every document that went to the President of the United States. I uh, prepared uh, and, and reviewed all the executive memorandum and, uh, and directives and uh, orders to the agencies. Uh, I, I saw the national security information for three I'm years of my life. I'm sorry are you going to, I, w I was sure. hoping you would get to one case. Yeah, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about one thing that's very special to me. You, you, know. you bet, you bet. Um, there's a woman named uh, Maria Cristina that I know well, and her dad was uh, deported after living here for 35 years. Uh, her mom got deported not long after. They came here illegally um, in the 1980s, uh, and from what I can tell, never did anything wrong af after, after that, worked two jobs. And he was so depressed about being thrown out uh, that he suffered a series of health setbacks. He found himself in Mexico with no health insurance, with no network of, of friends or family, and uh, with no access to real care. And on February 27th, he died of a heart attack. And I did everything I knew how to get him out of jail so we could spend the last couple of weeks with his family, and I did that. Basing, uh, basing my appeal on my experience in the White House, I knew how to, how to do that. But I couldn't stop it. And so when I went to his funeral, and my husband and I went to his funeral, his daughter Maria thanked us. And she said, thank you for what you did for my dad. Um, so I'm going to tell you about a story that I didn't feel very good about, which is that um, I don't feel like I did enough. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't think any of us are doing enough. And that's why I'm running for attorney general. Because as attorney general, you can go into federal court and seek an injunction against unconstitutional or illegal federal immigration policies. As a congressman, you can slow it down. So I think we need to do more. And, uh, and I'm going to be proud to do a lot more if you give me this opportunity. Well, thank you for the question. I am proud uh, to have been a lawyer for 28 years. My roots in this state run deep. I have more courtroom experience than any other candidate in this race across this state and federal and state courts. But the case that I'm most proud of is a case that I handled with three other young women associates when I was a young associate at Covington and Burling in Washington, D.C. I joined three other women in representing, as a plaintiff class, all women incarcerated in the District of Columbia prisons against the District of Columbia. The name of the case filed in federal district court in the District of Columbia is Women Prisoners of the District Columbia versus the District of Columbia. There were four parts of the case, one dealing with environmental care, one dealing with the lack of equal educational opportunities to male prisoners, sexual harassment. We had clients who felt that they had to have sexual intercourse with prison guards to be able to have a guarantee of seeing their children. I was in charge of the obstetrical gynecological care part of the case. One of my clients had her leg shackled to a hospital bed as she brought a child into this world. This is in the nation's capital and our country. This conduct clearly was inhumane as well as being unconstitutional. And so we filed suit, we fought hard. The litigators out there know what I'm talking about. We fought very hard, but I'm proud to say we won. We won. The case was appealed to the DC Circuit from which Judge Kavanaugh now hails. And we won in the DC Circuit. And then they sought to appeal it to the United States Supreme Court which denied cert. That is the kind of what we call baby lawyer I was. I was 29 years old when I represented hundreds of incarcerated women. That gives you a glimpse of the kind of attorney general I will be.
Ms. Jean. The law has been the firmest pillar of our democracy, and the law historically has been used as a sword and as a shield. Someone once uh, ridiculed me and said, Tish James goes into the office of public advocate each and every day. She thinks of a lawsuit. She, she sues somebody, and then she goes home. That's true. I've sued on behalf of the residents of public housing. I've sued on behalf of autistic children. I've sued on behalf of children in foster care. I've sued on behalf of residents who were uh, illegally evicted, evicted um, by construction. I've sued on behalf of senior citizens who were not getting benefits. I've sued the mayor of the city of New York on a wide range of issues, but the case that I am most proud of is representing a child pro bono who came to this country illegally. His father was murdered in, El in, in Honduras. His mother abandoned him. And I went to court and, saw, and represented him and was successful in getting an asylum petition granted. He recently graduated from high school. He lives in Brooklyn with his uncle, and he just introduced me to his girlfriend who I do not like. <laughs> I also filed recently an in-friend brief on behalf of a child who was ripped out of the arms of a mother. I'm so happy to say that our petition was granted. The family has been reunited and they've been released from detention. We should not live in a world where children are ripped out of the arms of their children. And it was important, it was imperative that I go to court and represent those families. And I have consistently, and I, have, I think I'm the only candidate, uh, or maybe there's another candidate, but I have visited a number of detention centers to ensure that they are complying with federal law. And it's critically important that we all understand our values and our principles as Americans, and that we never ever allow that to happen again. And as the next Attorney General of the State of New York, I will fight this illegitimate president tooth and nail to remind him of what America is all about. I started my career um, as a death penalty lawyer representing people on a post-conviction review who had been sentenced to death. And as a death penalty lawyer, you learn a lot. Um, you certainly learn about the horrors of our current criminal justice system, but you also learn how to both dig up facts, intense investigation, find things that haven't been found before because there is the threat of the state trying to kill your client. You also learn how to dig up laws and legal theories that haven't been used before. And uh, um, somebody I worked with very closely is here tonight, uh, Stephen Greenwald, um, who I did uh, worked on many different cases uh, with. The case I want to talk about is the bulk of my career I have been focused on anti-corruption work. Um, and uh, I wrote the book on corruption um, called Corruption in America. I've been working with money and politics groups as well as antitrust groups on legal strategies over the years. Three days, as I mentioned earlier, uh, three days after Trump took office, I and a small team of lawyers representing uh, people in the hospitality and restaurant industry sued Donald Trump in the Southern District of New York for violating the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses of the Constitution. He is taking foreign government money, like from the Chinese government, uh, from a, a Saudi prince through his businesses going into his own pocket. That's in direct violation of the Constitution, but these are issues that have never been litigated before. 
Um, we built this legal strategy. That case is currently on appeal in the Second Circuit. I've taken myself off that case so, as a candidate. Um, but I've continued to advise the attorneys general in D.C. and Maryland. And they just recently had a major victory. And in that victory, Judge Massetti cited my work explicitly adopting my theory of the emoluments clause. Ms. Eve, what steps can the Attorney General take to address New York's widening income inequality gap? Well, there are a number of ways to address it. And frankly, when I received the question about priorities, that's why I focused on the challenges we have here at home. Education, as I mentioned before, is not an issue that you hear an Attorney General speak about. But I believe it's fundamental to the well-being of communities across this state. If you don't have a basic quality education, you have three strikes against you before you're out of the gate. So I believe that ensuring that all children receive their constitutional right under the state's constitution to a quality basic education is critical to closing the gap. We also need to do more to expand economic opportunities for New Yorkers across the state. We need to do more to ensure a fair criminal justice system and provide greater alternatives to incarceration. So for people who have committed a crime but done their time and paid their debt to society, they are in the best position with the state of New York by their side to turn their lives around and lead productive lives that benefits them and their families and, and all of us. These are just some of the challenges that we must confront and we must address. And I am the candidate that is best prepared to address them. Ms. James. Income inequality. Um, as the public advocate of the city of New York, we passed uh, groundbreaking legislation to ban salary history because I believe in equal pay for equal work, it should be more than just a slogan. The governor of the state of New York issued an executive order, and I'm now urging the governor of the state of New York to codify um, banning salary history. It's also important um, that we set policies to promote more women as partners. We promote more women and give them more C-suites. We promote more women in a wide range of industries. We need to elect more women in government on the federal level, on the state level, and obviously on the local level. We also, I'm so glad I was part of the effort to raise minimum wage in the state of New York particularly on behalf of fast food workers. And so I have been in the forefront on a wide range of issues addressing the issue of income inequality because income inequality particularly hurts women. And at this City Bar Association, I led a forum to talk about private pensions and how it's necessary that we have more private pensions um, and that we create a system to promote more private pensions. Unfortunately, when this president came in, he decided to do away with that and did not uh, support my effort um, and basically said it was in violation of ERISA. We have to be more creative. We've got to be more innovative. We've got to push the envelope both on litigation and in terms of policy and legislation. And all throughout my 20 years of public work, I've done just that. And I will continue to do that as the next Attorney General. We also need to increase and promote more women and minority-owned businesses in the state of New York and provide them a greater share of contracts. Ms. Ticho. Uh, thanks for the question, because I, um, I'm going to talk about three different ways. But at the root of being the people's lawyer, standing up for this radical promise of law, which is the promise that all people, regardless of wealth, 
regardless of the color of their skin, their debt, an addiction problem they may have, are equal in the eyes of the law. Um, equality is actually really at the heart of the job. So I'll just mention three particular ways. One is in um, taking on corruption in Albany. The Buffalo Billion trial this summer, I went to opening day argument, um, was about three quarters of a million dollars that was supposed to go to economic development in the state, instead going to major donors. It's a, it was a bid rigging scheme. It, it really showed quite clearly the way that corruption leads to inequality, which leads to suffering. Because in Utica, which has a, uh, for a family of four, an average income making $30,000 a year, they were desperate for those economic development dollars, but instead they went to big donors. So fighting corruption is also about fighting inequality. Second, investigating um, illegal, illegal behavior in the real estate industry, whether that's tenant harassment or tax fraud. Both of those are drivers of inequality. And I don't take uh, real estate corporate money. Um, the office has moved in a really good direction in the last 20 months, uh, bringing on a great tenants lawyer to run the bureau. Um, but there's so much more that we need to do, and failure to enforce the law in the real estate industry is a, is a driver of inequality. And third, something I mentioned in passing but care quite passionately about, is really leading um, the fight to end cash bail in this state, working with the incredible activists that have gotten it as far as it's gotten already, because cash bail is a direct affront to law itself. It's saying you're incarcerated because of how much money you can afford as opposed to because of um, what you have done. Mr. Maloney. Right. Well, um, I, I guess my initial reaction to your question is that, is that it's, it's tempting to think that the Attorney General of New York is the universal elixir for all human problems. I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that's the right frame to start with, but let me answer your question. I think, yes, you're going to want to focus on the things that are the legislature's job and the governor's job and push those, and you can introduce program bills, and there's, a, there's an important role there for sure. Equal pay, you bet. Uh, paid family leave, you bet. Uh, highest minimum wage in the country, you bet. We've done a lot of those things under Governor Cuomo, by the way, and that's good. I do think where this office is going to come in is on vindicating the rights of workers and of working families to get what they have coming to them. So I'm thinking of wage theft that is a terrible problem for uh, for organized labor. Think about your health care costs. Think about a working family that spends most of its income uh, trying to get the medicine for a sick parent or an ailing child. Um, so, uh, so prescription drug price transparency is something this office can really work on, holding opioid manufacturers accountable to the extent that they, uh, they should be for the costs associated with those types of health care issues. Housing is critically important for people. This office has a role to play in directing civil asset forfeiture funds uh, to help uh, things like the land banks I work with in Newburgh, New York. Uh, that makes a real difference to help a working class family get affordable housing. Even though you don't make the policy, you can fund the solutions that are working. And you can particularly uh, direct funds that were, were ill-gotten to helping the victims. And that's a great area to start. I do think discrimination is at the heart of what this office should focus on because so much of what holds people back from making a, making a real wage or making, a, making it in this country is that they never get that chance. It's because you're transgender or you're gay and lesbian or you're African American or you're Latino and your rights are being vindicated uh, or being, are, being, are being discriminated against, excuse me, and, and the Attorney General should vindicate those rights. I do think having an active role in criminal justice reform is important. My husband is here tonight. He works, he works 
He works so passionately on prison education programs, the Bard Prison Initiative and others, reentry programs that help people reentering society um, make a living and be productive and contribute to the welfare of the country. And I think you can fund those programs uh, through this office and civil asset, asset forfeiture and other uh, forfeiture funds. Uh, so those are some ideas where this office could actually do something within its authorities. Next question goes to Ms. James. Do you see any issue with immigration and customs enforcement making civil arrests in and around state courthouses? If I, so, uh, sorry. <laughs> if so, if so, what would you do as Attorney General? But I'd like to, you to confine your answer to powers that are within the Attorney General's office. Okay. So the Office of Attorney General is an advocacy role, and it's really critically important that the advocacy role be used, particularly um, in abolishing ICE. Um, ICE is an affront um, to our democracy. It's really critically important um, that when we abolish ICE, uh, that we set up another organization, we re rebuild another organization to focus on issues that ICE is responsible for, such as human trafficking um, and gun trafficking, um, as uh, well as um, patrolling the border um, and, um, and, and dealing with terrorism in our country. So it's really critically important that one, um, the chief judge, uh, we work with the chief judge so that law enforcement agents and officers within courthouses not cooperate with ICE. Two, that we inform individuals when in fact ICE agents are in court um, to detain individuals. Three, um, it's really critically important uh, that uh, we use uh, common law uh, to enforce the law with respect to individuals who are currently before a court seeking justice that they not be arrested. Um, Lastly, we need to make sure that uh, um, ICE is totally removed from the courthouse and that we challenge it consistently and repeatedly. ICE is really an affront to immigrants, and it's important that uh, immigrants also have legal representation when they're, when they're facing detention. I think that's really critically important. I applaud what Melissa Marco-Viverito has put forward as the former speaker in the city council and also with the, with the assistance of the mayor of the city of New York. I also believe that um, immigrants who are afraid of going to court right now, um, it has, it's having a chilling effect on the administration of justice, and ICE is basically impeding justice, and it's really critically important that we all stand together and abolish ICE and its abuses against immigrants who are basically seeking justice. Um, th thank you for the question. Um, I, I've written a couple op-eds on why it's important for law enforcement to really be leading the fight to abolish ICE as it undermines basic principles of law. Um, in terms of the particular things the office can do, I do I, I agree that I think the, the, the bully pulpit is important there. There's also the critical lawsuits that um, have been filed by Barbara Underwood against the illegal actions of the Trump administration. Um, they are essential. We must continue with that litigation. And she and the Attorney General's office have been real leaders on that nationally. Um, three, uh, supporting um, uh, New York State becoming a true sanctuary state so that local law enforcement is not cooperating um, in any, uh, in, in, in these instances with ICE, that's absolutely essential. We are not where California is, and I would certainly um, push for that. Four, 
uh, making sure there is the representation, which is absolutely essential. I agree with you on that as well. <laughs> um, and then five, really examining the civil rights violations of ICE um, in our schools, ICE in our courts, ICE um, on our streets. I also support driver's licenses in New York State for undocumented immigrants. And I think it's, again, critical that law enforcement really lead the charge on why that's so important. Maloney. Uh, well, thank you for the question. I mean, this is, this is something that has come up in this campaign. I'm deeply uncomfortable with the glib answer that we should abolish ICE. I think what people mean by that, although I think it's irresponsible for somebody running for the chief legal officer of the state to shorthand it, um, I think what people mean by that is that the policy of the Trump administration is, is racist and unacceptable in its application, and that to, to in, impose a zero-tolerance policy which makes no distinction between a young woman's family I mentioned earlier, a man who's been working for 30 years supporting his family, to make no distinction between an individual like that and an MS-13 gang member or a terrorist is unconscionable, and it has led directly, step by step, to separating kids from their parents at the border. That's why we did that, and there are still 500 kids that have not been reunited. I've been to the detention centers. There aren't good answers for why it happened. You can't get a straight answer out of this administration. So I understand the frustration with what's happening. Real families are being torn apart. But this office has to lead law enforcement and has to, and has to bring it up. I mean, I represent Orange County, New York, and I represent uh, parts of Westchester and Putnam County and Dutchess. We've got a lot of first responders. We have a lot of uh, law enforcement personnel. I remember what those people did on 9-11. I, I see the good work that so many people in law enforcement do, and I don't want the chief legal for, uh, off, uh, uh, officer of this state bashing law enforcement just to score cheap political points. I think it is a fair argument to say that the Trump administration is way out of line and we are seeing families ripped apart. But this office should lead and it should, it should, it should challenge law enforcement that tells me as a congressman, local law enforcement especially, we don't want to be ICE. We don't want to be rounding up people for immigration violations. It's in the way of our investigations of domestic violence or of crimes that we're trying to solve. So I, I think what's good about law enforcement and the best voices in it can be, can be part of the solution here but I absolutely think we need to take it to court. That's where this office should make its arguments. That's the work Barbara Underwood's doing. I support that wholeheartedly, and it has been at the heart of ending child separation, keeping the dreamers in the country, and ending some of the worst abuses we've seen. And that's where the focus should be. Steve. Well, first of all, um, I share Sean's view. Uh, two of my opponents who speak of shutting down ICE, in my view, that reflects a lack of understanding about how the Trump administration's policies work, how federal government works. You can abolish ICE and quote unquote, as one of my opponents said, create another agency. Guess what? The President of the United States is still there. The policy is the same, whether you call it ICE, ACE, or any other agency. So it's the job of the Attorney General to aggressively fight to push back against the policy of ICE, to prosecute any law enforcement official who breaks any law, federal, state, or local. And, and I will also say, you know, I feel very strongly about this because there is a legal conduct that is taking place on the part of employees of ICE. 
and they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But I served as the Senate Counsel and Homeland Security Advisor to Hillary Rodham Clinton for four and a half years before, during, and after 9-11. And I respect a great deal the vast majority of law enforcement officers who get up and go to work every day risking their lives to keep all of us safe. And one of the key components of ICE has nothing to do with immigration, it has to do with fighting terrorism. And this city remains on high alert. I am chair of the security committee of the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, that has been subjected to two terrorist threats in the past year. So with all due respect to my two of my opponents who are treating this as if this is not serious and they don't understand this is this is incredibly important but the question had to do with civil arrests around state courthouses state courthouses i would have state troopers there arresting ice agents who are attempting to conduct civil arrests on uh, in or around state courthouses that is what i would do as the attorney general we will now move to uh questions that are limited to one-minute responses. Um, and ironically, the questions are longer to better, <laughs> better frame the issue. So please pay attention. So can I just say, we've been really civil there. and nice up here. So when can we like mix it up? If, if you want. Immediately. Because there's times when I wanted to mix it up. But since we're in a stately office, I'll behave. Adaptation. Um, so the question, which will first be posed to Ms. Teachout. The Attorney General's office is currently tasked through an executive order with investigating instances where a law enforcement officer is involved in the death of an unarmed civilian. Do you think the governor should broaden the order to include other state employees, such as correction officers? Um, this is, you're talking about Executive Order 147, which has been a really important executive order, and I do think it should be broadened. Um, I think it should be broadened in various ways. It's addressing a core conflict of interest where DAs are not prosecuting to the full extent officers engaged in um, violence. Um, first, right now it covers unarmed, and the question of what is unarmed uh, leads to really difficult situations. Um, I think it should not solely concern unarmed, because what we want to know is that law enforcement is going to investigate um, uh, uh, deaths, um, including looking at all the facts and not making a preliminary judgment about whether a bat somewhere in the corner of a room makes something armed. Oh, no, I only have one minute. <laughs> but, but I also think it's important um, to include um, instances that don't lead to um, death. Um, but other instances of assault and violence. Um, and I actually think this is a really essential role uh, for the next Attorney General. Uh, Mr. Maloney, in light of Ms. Teachout's response, I'm going to ask, I'm going to modify the question as originally posed by someone who sent it to us, which is, do you think the executive order should be broadened in any way to include either activities from police officers or to include persons other than police officers. You're talking about death caused by a public official? Or, or are you talking about or just... in any way? <laughs> well, um, look, it, I, I agree with what's ever said. I, I think there's a very important role for the Attorney General to play to be a uh, finder of fact and a neutral and fair um, arbiter of these very difficult and very painful cases. By the way, this isn't a job that a lot of people would love to do. 
this is very, very difficult work in many cases, but I do think there's a role for it. Uh, we've seen it come into play in cases of sexual violence or harassment or the failure to investigate it. We've seen it come into play certainly in, in cases of uh, uh, law enforcement involved deaths. Um, I think that's appropriate, absolutely. And I have no problem extending it to any other uh, like context. I think it would be great if we extended the authority of the Attorney General into putting a bunch of crooks in Albany in jail, too. I think it'd be great as long as we were enhancing the authorities of the Attorney General um, to, to actually en encompass the most powerful people in the state who are the most unaccountable. Uh, and so that would also be my focus if you were giving me the pen on how to expand the authorities of the Attorney General's office. But absolutely, I think that, I think that our criminal justice system like all of our institutions, benefits from accountability, which is why, by the way, I also support the, the, the measure to, to hold uh, prosecutors accountable as well, especially as, as, uh, as, as amended. Ms. Eve. Yes, uh, in answer to your question, I believe it should be included to include corrections officers. Obviously, I speak from experience, having represented hundreds of women incarcerated in District of Columbia prisons who were victims of sexual assault. Uh, and so, yes, a resounding yes in answer to your question. I also say that, though, as a daughter of someone who in 1971 was the very first person to walk into the Attica prison in uprisings, uh, Attica prison during the uprising, my father, Arthur Eve, was asked by the prisoners there, along with Tom Wicker of the New York Times, to come in and be an observer and negotiate on their behalf. And at the end of the day, what we saw because of horrific conduct by the state of New York, there were prisoners who were left dead, maimed, and prison guards who were left dead and maimed. Those actions involved, in many in in instances, correction officers. And so without question, uh, I believe that the authority should be expanded to include a broader array of those who are part of the criminal justice system. Ms. James. I'm the only individual on this panel who went to court to seek the grand jury minutes in Eric Garner. I'm the only individual on this panel who actually urged the governor of the state of New York to issue an executive order, and he did. And I'm the only uh, individual on this panel who, who has basically been involved in, uh, in urging the governor of the state of New York to broaden those powers to include correction officers and sheriffs. There's a sheriff, there's a sheriff currently in Buffalo um, who unfortunately there's been a significant number of individuals who have died in his custody. And one most recently was a young lady where it was determined to be a homicide and that sheriff is still the sheriff in Buffalo. I and I also urge the governor of the state of New York recently to sign uh, the prosecutorial misconduct bill. And I've worked very closely with the district attorney of Brooklyn, the former district attorney, the late Ken Thompson, and now Eric Gonzalez for a uh, conviction integrity review unit. And as the next attorney general of the state of New York, there will be a, a conviction integrity unit in my office uh, to in examine and to review a significant number of cases. But we also need the grievance committee to go after district attorneys who unfortunately violate the law as well. On the next question, we're starting with Mr. Maloney. The governor just signed a law establishing a new bipartisan commission on prosecutorial misconduct. As if we anticipated the question. <laughs> well, we have a little, bit, little, of a, we have a little bit of a different take, so <laughs> please stick to, this, to our take on it. The DA's association <coughs> is bringing a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the law. So as attorney general, you would be asked to defend this lawsuit. If you find defects in this legislation, Will you still defend it? Well, sure, you do your job, uh, except in cases of extraordinary moral conflict. I do think 
that what we're talking about here is a law that has been passed with an agreement to amend it, and it addresses the concerns that the Attorney General mentioned in her opinion on this, or so we're led to believe. So I think we all probably ought to keep our powder dry on this. I understand that it is a sensitive issue for the district attorneys. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, they passed a law on this, but, but in only a way that Albany can do, the governor signed a law that will not be the law. He has agreed with the legislative leaders to change it, though he signed it. I'll explain it later. But, 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 <laughs> but what, that, what that has the effect of doing is it has the effect of hopefully addressing the very legitimate constitutional concerns with the way it was uh, comprised with the separation of powers and the other arguments that Attorney General Underwood has, has, has stated about this, with, with which I agree. But, the, but the, here's the bottom line. Uh, prosecutors are, are enormously powerful people in our society. They should be held accountable like the rest of us, and there should be a fair way to do that. I think it's a step in the right direction. Thank you. Steve? Yes, I would defend the law, and uh, to the extent that uh, there are challenges to it, uh, as Sean has noted, there's already discussions about how to remedy any purported uh, defects. I believe there are few issues that are more important than providing a system to hold district attorneys who have extraordinary power in our criminal justice system, to hold them to account for violating ethics and certainly for violating laws. And I also just want to briefly mention, uh, Ms. James mentioned a young woman in Buffalo. She has a name. Her name is India Cummings. She was 27 years old. She was taken into custody by law enforcement to the Erie County Holding Center, equivalent of a Rikers Island in Erie County and days later was found dead on the floor of her jail cell in her own urine and in vomit. Right now, under the existing executive order, the Attorney General of the State of New York has the authority to investigate and prosecute that crime. Uh, it has been deemed a homicide by the Medical Review Board, and so the authority is already there to investigate that particular case. And so I just wanted to clarify those facts for the record for those of you who are concerned about what happened to this woman, whose death, if I am the Attorney Thank General, you. will not be in vain. We'll go on to Ms. James. But it's not the only case in Buffalo, and there are others. The reality is, is that um, the case, uh, the prosecutorial misconduct bill, um, is in violation of the law. The district attorneys have argued that it's a violation of separation of powers, that the legislature, le legislature overstepped their boundary and is trampling on their powers as part of the executive. Um, both uh, the Speaker of the State Assembly as well as the next leader of the State Senate, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, have agreed to correct those constitutional objections. The bill will be passed in all likelihood in January, and yes, I would be proud and honored to defend it as someone who has witnessed too many abuses by district attorneys from Buffalo all the way to Long Island. So I, I, I want to answer what I think might be a, a, a different heart of the question, which, is, which goes to um, the question of the role of the Attorney General when there are constitutional questions about a law that they may have to defend. So executive law in New York State clearly provides that the Attorney General must defend the state. That means that if there's a law I don't agree with, that doesn't matter, you are defending that law. There's a separate obligation um, to one, it's an independent elected position, you're the people's lawyer, um, to uphold the Constitution. So 99% of the cases, maybe even more, 
you're just defending the law. Um, this is actually a legal question that I talked to a former Attorney General, Bob Abrams, about, um, who uh, I have great admiration for. And, and as, he, as he talked about, 99% of the time there's no conflict, but there are going to be those times when after serious, careful investigation, the Attorney General's office concludes, and I will conclude, that uh, defending the law would also constitute a constitutional violation. And in those cases, I think the obligation is first the people of New York and the constitutions. Ms. Ms. Eve, do you think it proper for the Attorney General to threaten banks or other financial institutions with criminal prosecution under the Martin Act as leverage for obtaining a substantial settlement of civil claims? Well, I don't know if I would use the word threaten without question. You know, I have been asked, would I be the sheriff of Wall Street if elected the next attorney general? The answer to that question is unequivocally, without hesitation, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. New Yorkers spend too many of their hard-earned resources. They work too hard and Ms. save Eve, too I'm much sorry, but the, the to question ensure. Is, the, here, the, the key question is threat, which you said I don't know about. I, I'm asking the answer to that. Would, do you think it's proper to threaten criminal prosecution if in order to obtain a better civil se settlement? The, at the end of the day, if, if I believe that someone or a bank or a financial institution has violated criminal law, there's no threat involved. I'm investigating and prosecuting, period. Period. Thank you. Ms. James. I disagree with the premise of your question. The Martin Act is probably the most powerful tool of the Office of Attorney General. And any attempts to minimize it um, or to change it obviously would have a major impact on investors and the general public. But saying that, as was mentioned, um, I think uh, most people know I don't want to be known as the uh, sheriff on Wall Street. I think we should continue to police Wall Street, um, but I, I want my own moniker, my own title. I want to pave my own course in the office of attorney general. But the same question, do you think it's proper to threaten a criminal prosecution to obtain a better result in a civil case? I don't know whether or not any previous attorney general has ever threatened to get a better civil outcome. What I do know is that there are violations on Wall Street and that the vast majority and a significant number of homeowners all throughout the state of New York have lost their um, property. I also know that's on the horizon is student debt. And I know the same challenges that we argued against mortgage lenders is going to have a is going to blow up in our faces as individuals continue to cut up debt and then sell it. And what we are seeing is uh, servicers um, basically uh, violate the law. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ms. Cijo. So um, uh, this is an area where I agree with Licia. Um, if, uh, if I believe there has been a crime, then investigating and prosecuting that crime is part of the job. <clears throat> and after the financial crisis, I co-founded a group that, that ended up working with Americans for Financial Reform, pushing for Dodd-Frank. We pushed for 
breaking up big banks, greater financial stability, but also for making sure that there are more criminal prosecutions. There were far too few criminal prosecutions. Teach out, same after question. The <laughs> but what about threatening criminal prosecution to attain a better result in a civil case? I think the key is following the law and the facts and being open to those criminal investigations. I think that's critical. Mr. Maloney. Yeah, Roger, I'm not sure I understand what you're trying to do with that question. I think the bottom line is, I mean, I mean, I mean, that, and, and before, and, and I'm going to answer it, so um, let me save you the trouble of interrupting me. I think, I think, I think, I think the fact of the matter is, is that one of the problems the way, the way Andrew Cuomo changed the office from the way Elliot Spitzer ran it is that some of the prospective targets who come in don't know whether you're coming at them from a civil side or a criminal side. I don't think it's a bad idea when people may have criminal or civil liability to have to guess which way you're going to come at them. And I think that if you can prove it a criminal case, you can prove a criminal case. If in your discretion you think it's more efficient for the office, for the taxpayers, for the administration of justice to, to, to have an enhanced civil settlement, then hell yeah, you would do that too. So this notion that you're going to juxtapose it as some sort of uh, misdoing, I actually think is doing the job. I think what matters is whether you've got the goods, whether you've got the horses, and whether people in those industries look at those cases and say that was fair, that was right. What I don't want to see what I don't want to see is I don't want to see one of us promise you that we are going to prosecute a bunch of industries in New York just for the hell of it when we haven't actually got the facts of the law to do it. That's what's inappropriate. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. James, yes. what one bill would you like to see the legislature pass? And please limit your answer to one bill. <laughs> I would say the same to anyone. So in the first hundred days, yet. I have five bills, but the number one bill, <laughs> five bills within the first hundred Which days will, will be passed. I've already begun discussions with the Speaker as well as the State Senate, but the number one bill is to give the Office of Attorney General uh, original jurisdiction to um, investigate corruption in the state of New York. It's really critically important. And so having had discussions uh, with the Assembly, having had discussions with the Speaker, um, I recognize uh, that the governor of the state of New York, when he was the Attorney General, he sought that original jurisdiction. And, but uh, this Attorney General will get it done. Just one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> OK. Um, the New York State Attorney General needs to be on the front lines in cleaning up corruption. And if I could wave a wand and make the legislature comfortable with prosecuting with a prosecutor investigator coming at it, I would also push for giving original jurisdiction for civil and criminal investigation of corruption. The difference here is I think that's less likely to happen. And one of the key things I would do is turn around and say to the governor, whoever that is, you have to reopen the Moreland Commission and make sure that we can investigate right now because we cannot let the governor off the hook. We have to investigate corruption now, not waiting for the legislature to act. So we have a genuine corruption crisis, and I've been studying corruption and working on anti-corruption cases and fights my entire life, and New York is enfeebled by this corruption. Inequality is driven by it. We cannot have the series of trials, and we should not have to rely on the Southern District of New York. And we would close the pardon loophole. <laughs> well, I'm tempted to say um, when I meet with the legislature, the one bill I'd ask them to pass is term limits um, <laughs> for all of us. But, but, I, but I, do think, uh, I do think seriously 
that, that the right answer is that this office needs primary criminal jurisdiction, primary jurisdiction over public corruption. That, that one change would be historic and, and critically important to finally taking seriously this issue and putting an empowered official in charge of it. Um, so I'd, I'd leave it right there. Thank you. Steve? There are so many issues, and I, at first I thought corruption, but I believe although the jurisdictional basis for prosecuting corruption could be broadened and strengthened, as Attorney General, I will leave no stone unturned investigating and prosecuting corruption based upon the existing authority building upon the 2011 agreement between the state control and the state attorney general. So if I had to pick just one act, that's the first act, looking up at RBG on the wall right there, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I would ask, I would ask the state legislature, given the assault on women's rights, and reproductive rights, I would ask them to immediately codify Roe v. Wade so that whatever this Supreme Court does, whatever the Supreme Court does, if in fact there is a Justice Kavanaugh, that a woman's right to choose what happens with her own body will be fully protected in this state. Thank you. Um, each of the candidates here tonight has indicated in public comments their support for reforming the Joint Commission on Professional Ethics. So my question to Ms. Teachout first is, what is the first step you will take to do this? The first step um, is that, oh, look, we need to totally scrap and have an actually independent JCOP, Joint Commission on Public Ethics. Um, but right now, we need to make sure that Seth Agata resigns. He is the executive director of Jacob. And as I was saying in the answer to the last question, one of the key um, jobs here is to not wait for the perfect, but to recognize the crisis as we have it. Seth Agata, as executive director, has failed to issue substantial, uh, substantial basis complaints for months at a time. Well, we have corruption crises and sexual harassment claims, sexual misconduct claims swept under the rug. He wrote an unprofessional email to Joe Loda saying that Loda could keep his job heading the MTA while taking outside income in, in violation of basic ethics rules in this state. So I actually think the first step is today. The first step is standing up for a strong Jacob and saying, even with a broken Jacob, we have to hold leadership accountable. Mr. Maloney. Well, the, the job of this office is to demonstrate the need for it by making cases that hold people accountable now using existing authorities. I do think it can, it can be important for an attorney general to say, here's what you ought to do. I think a reformed JCOP would have total independence. It would have different membership. It would not be able to get hamstrung by a couple of people, by one legislative leader. It would be able to refer public corruption cases, perhaps, to the attorney general, including sexual assault and sexual violence cases, which have for far too long been swept under the rug, particularly in Albany. And I think, and I think I'm happy to have new leadership. I, I don't want to get down in the weeds on, on that issue. I think there's not a dime's worth of difference between any of us on Jacob, but I do, think, I do think the Attorney General of New York better start mining the existing authorities to fight public corruption. For example, the Medicaid fraud 
uh, Crime Fraud Act, which gives you sweeping authorities under federal law to go after Medicaid-funded institutions. You can get after a lot of public corruption that way. Tens of billions of dollars are spent there. You can do a lot with local DAs, partnering with them to give them resources from this office and say, I've got the staff, you've got the jurisdiction, let's go. You haven't been able to prioritize this, but now you can. I'm going to provide those assistant attorneys general to you. Those are real steps an attorney general can take right now that will further demonstrate the need to change the commission and to change the law. Ms. Eve. I believe JCOPE needs to be scrapped entirely as well as the Legislative Ethics Committee, uh, particularly the latter, showing no evidence that uh, the legislature can police itself when it comes to ethics reform. But on day one, regardless of whether the legislature acts, I would hit the ground running using the existing authority, particularly based upon this 2011 agreement with the state controller that I referred to earlier. That 2011 agreement says that the state controller will share with the attorney general significant investigative and prosecutorial powers with respect to the misuse of taxpayer funds. That is extraordinary broad authority. That means a nonprofit, a corporation, a state employee, a state elected official, a state appointed official who misuses taxpayer funds. Now the attorney general for seven years has had the shared authority with the state attorney, state uh, controller to investigate incidences of uh, misuse of funds and then gets referrals directly from the controller's office to prosecute uh, any alleged crimes or civil violations with respect to those state funds. Ms. James. Jacob is a J joke. And so what we, and so just changing faces is not reform. We need a constitutional amendment to create an independent commission which is, will be subject to the approval of the voters throughout the state of New York. In addition to that, uh, uh, Miss Eve refers to the agreement. The agreement actually is Operation Integrity, and it's an agreement between the controller of the state of New York and the attorney general, but that, but that agreement needs to be strengthened as well. In addition to that, we need to work with the controller's office with respect to the abuse of public funds, but we also need to leverage existing power, both civilly and criminally, in the office of attorney general and we need to follow the facts and the evidence wherever it leads, including to the White House, including to the, to the second floor, or including to any municipality in the state of New York. Okay. Our next question is the last question. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it went fast. Do you plan to continue or exp continue expand the land bank community revitalization program? But if you do, the money from the bank settlements which fund this program and other perhaps worthy programs is going to run out. So how would you do it? And that question starts with Mr. Maloney. Yeah, well, obviously, obviously that's a, a, a been an issue from day one on this. I've worked with the previous attorney general extensively on this issue. I represent the city of Newburgh. I represent the city of Poughkeepsie. Uh, the land bank's a great program. It's not the only way to fund it. I think it is, it is, like a lot of programs, necessary to put together a coalition of funding sources. There is a public-private partnership role there for sure. The legislature could get in the game in a bigger way on this. And it's a proven model. I'm telling you, in a city like Newburgh or Poughkeepsie, look at Middletown, look at Port Jervis, these are places that have an extra housing stock that, that, that creates all sorts of um, related issues and, and concerns for, for the city. 
uh, getting those properties commercial ready, getting them back into the market, particularly for low income and local residents, is a very effective, uh, very effective program and, and in the end saves tax dollars because it lowers the overall tax base by having a larger tax base in those communities. These communities are on the way back, I'm telling you, and we need to, we need to invest in them and believe in them. So obviously there will be future funds that this office secures in future settlements, and, and it will be one of the priorities in my office, uh, together with the prison education programs and criminal justice reforms that I think are, are deserving as well. See you. Well, thank you for the question. I am proud that when I served as a general counsel of Empire State Development, I helped uh, craft what is now the state's land banks law. When I became the first woman and person of color to be the chief economic development advisor to a governor of our state, overseeing 11 agencies in state government, uh, I was involved with the implementation of the state's uh, newly enacted land bank law. There are a number of potential sources of revenue. Uh, as Attorney General, I would continue the work that Barbara Underwood has undertaken to go after Big Pharma to the extent that they have misled New Yorkers about the potency of their drugs and use some of the resources that are gained from that litigation to provide expanded treatment, but also to use funds potentially to go into a land bank uh, to help renovate homes that are in communities all across the city, all across the state, and in rural America that has been affected uh, by the ravages of the opioid crisis. Thank you. Ms. James. I'm the only individual on this panel who actually sued a mortgage lender named, known as Delta Funding when I was a former assistant attorney general and got relief for countless number of homeowners in the borough of Brooklyn who are primarily black and brown individuals. And what we are facing is another crisis which is on the horizon. And the next crisis on the horizon is servicers servicers who unfortunately are not crediting consumers, excessive fees and um, illegal late payments. In addition to that, student debt is another crisis on the horizon. So it's really critically important as the next attorney general um, that we focus on these issues. And I've also met from Buffalo all the way to Long Island, legal service organizations, because um, as a former public defender and as someone who works very closely with legal services, they represent the salt of the earth and they recognize issues on the ground. And legal services obviously have been focusing on zombie houses all throughout the state of New York and using land banks as a means to address affordable housing and to address the crisis um, that we are seeing not only in our city but all throughout the state of New York. The problem is, is that when you get a settlement as a result of um, using the Martin Act or any other creative lit litigation, uh, there's been an agreement with the governor. We need that funds for the, its intended purpose and that is to address the crisis in affordable housing and to address the zombie houses which scatter the, the land all across the state. So the land bank program has been extremely successful. Um, what I want to talk about is the basic principle of law that those who are harmed by illegal activity should be those who then recoup uh, any damages that come from that. So um, you put it more politely than I might have. Um, unfortunately, uh, there was a, a power grab recently where the governor then has authority over settlement funds as opposed to the attorney general's office. And it's more appropriate that the attorney general's office, who is closer to the victims, who's been working with the people that are the most affected, works to find the most strategic way to use settlement funding. So one example that Licia mentioned is in the opioid crisis, the a really powerful suit that Underwood brought, um, bringing it, by the way, solo, 
which gives her capacity to really manage the settlement, which is really important, uh, making sure that those settlement funds go back into treatment facilities. When the settlement funds are around real estate illegality, going into affordable housing. So making sure that it is very much the settlement money is going towards those who are the most affected in each particular area of litigation. Thank you. So each candidate will now have an opportunity to give a two-minute closing, <coughs> and by previously determined lot, Ms. Teachout goes first. Well, thank you very much. This evening went by so much faster than I thought. <laughs> I, th I thought we were going to be in for another 20 questions, um, and I really enjoyed it, enjoyed the questions. Thank you for your, um, your time. Um, we really are at a genuine crisis moment for law in this country and in this state. And um, I'm an anti-corruption expert and we have a corruption crisis. I have four priorities for this office. One is to bring that anti-corruption expertise to fight against the very new and very real threats of Donald Trump. And I'm really proud to have the endorsement of the New York Times and the Daily News and the Nation because of their recognition of the particular challenges of this moment and my particular background in this area. That also relates to a second priority, which is taking on corruption in Albany. I'm uniquely independent. I have a history of standing up to powerful forces, Republican or Democrat and being willing to call out corruption in Albany. And I will do that, do more than call out, but investigate because we finally need to clean house. Third, we really are going to need to chart new um, territory when it comes to what, this, what the New York State Attorney General's office does to protect basic rights, civil rights, consumer rights, we are going to need to rely on state courts when it comes to protecting our air and water and environment, not only because we have the EPA that we have, but because of, the, of what's happening in federal courts. And finally, um, uh, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I began my career representing people on death row. And I am committed to using the bully pulpit of this office to fight for voting rights against mass incarceration and for the deep, against the deep rot at the core of our system, which is the way that our campaigns are funded, and finally get publicly financed campaigns. Thank you so much for your time. I hope I earn your vote. Ms. James. We are in a pivotal moment in the history of this country, careening towards chaos and confusion in the midst of a constitutional crisis. And my campaign is fueled by the fierce urgency of now. And so my faith in the Constitution is whole. It's complete. It's full. And I will not allow anyone to subvert our democracy or our freedom. As someone who has consistently and repeatedly over 20 years spoken truth to power and who's challenged powerful interest in the state of New York, I will not allow anyone to question my independence because it's already been proven. As a former public defender who represented countless number of individuals in the criminal justice system, as a former assistant attorney general who investigated NYPD for stop and frisk practices, 
as a former city council member who took on the most powerful developer in Brooklyn, and as a public advocate of the city of New York who's passed more laws than all previous public advocates combined and handled 32,000 constituent complaints and has led the way to divest from fossil fuels in the city and to divest from hedge funds and to divest from gun retailers. No, this is not an academic exercise. What we need is practical experience and someone who has demonstrated power over and over again. I stand before you in the spirit of Shirley Chisholm, who's unbossed and unbought. And I stand before you in the spirit of Barbara Jordan, who investigated Richard Nixon as part of the impeachment hearings. As the next Attorney General of the State of New York, I look forward to enforcing the law, and I look forward to initiating litigation to protect vulnerable New Yorkers and marginalized individuals in the State of New York. And I look forward to being a force to be reckoned with. And lastly, when President Trump, who refuses to denounce white nationalists and white racists, when he wakes up the day after the election and sees my face as the New York State Attorney General, I'm looking forward to his tweet. Thank you. <laughs> Ms. Eve. Well, first of all, thank you for doing such a wonderful job moderating uh, this forum and for all of you uh, who are in attendance. I am running as the most qualified, most prepared, most experienced candidate to be the chief legal officer of the greatest state and the greatest nation on earth at a time when this role is more important than it has ever been in my lifetime. That's not just my view, it's also the view of the Albany Times Union that unanimously endorsed my candidacy. It's also the view of the Queen's Tribune, who, by the way, made a point of saying that every single member of their editorial board believes that I should be the next Attorney General because they talked about this is not the time for on-the-job training. These are serious times. We have an assault, an unprecedented assault on every single right that we as New Yorkers and Americans hold dear. And New York needs to continue to lead the way to fight against that assault. But we also have unprecedented challenges here at home that if we are honest with ourselves, predate the election of Donald Trump. We own an unfair criminal justice system. We own lack of educational economic opportunity for all New Yorkers. We own some of the worst voting laws in the nation. We own the fact that the lead paint law that my father authored decades ago as a leader of the state legislature continues to be violated and we have thousands of children who continue to be permanently damaged by exposure to lead paint. We have enormous challenges and I stand before you the most experienced litigator in courtrooms across the state, the person who has fought in the trenches for social justice for more than 25 years. The lawyer that I was when I was 29 years old representing hundreds of incarcerated women is the kind of lawyer, the kind of fighter I will be on behalf of all New Yorkers as the next Attorney General of the State of New York. Thank you so much. Mr. Maloney. Well, thank you to the Association of the Bar. Thank you, Roger. Uh, thank you, Susan. Thank you to all of you. I hope you see uh, before you someone who has 25 years of public and private sector experience. Um, I've done real legal work, run real investigations, uh, 
negotiated major transactions, worked on congressional hearings and special counsel matters uh, for more than a decade of my life. I've been a partner at two major law firms in this city and worked at a third. I've also got extraordinary uh, public sector experience. Uh, I've spent three years on the White House senior staff, uh, seeing every document that went to the President of the United States, holding a national security clearance. I was there during an impeachment crisis. I've spent uh, two years working at a senior staff level for two different governors of New York and managed over a dozen state agencies and departments. And I've spent six years in the Congress where I've, I've, I've passed 30 bills into law. And I'm very proud of the work I've done. But I'll tell you, I also see somebody who's a husband, who's a father, who believes that this party ought to be the party of FDR because I represent parts of the state that FDR represented who said we only have to fear fear. I think we ought to be the party again of John Kennedy and of Barack Obama. We're the guys who gave you the new frontier and hope and change. And I think we are so paralyzed by fear and so distracted by the circus that is the Trump administration that we are in danger of becoming defined by the very things we say we're against. I want to lift people up. I want to be part of the future. And let me say something to the Democrats in the room. We need to start winning again. And you're looking at the only person on this stage who has beat the Republicans three times in tough elections. It's one thing to talk about it. I am a gay man with an interracial family who won in a Trump district. That wasn't a given. Don't tell me, don't tell me Democrats can't win everywhere. I do it for a living. And one of the things you have to do, one of the things you have to do is not just win, though I want to beat them. One of the things you have to do is get results when you get elected so that you can start building this coalition. So we aren't in power for a year or two years. We don't have to worry about one appointment to the Supreme Court. I want to build a coalition that lasts a generation or two, like FDR did. And I want to remember that we can lead with our ideals, not just with our fears. That we can be part of something good, not just stopping something bad. I don't want to have a Tea Party on the left. I want to have a movement of hope again so that we can go forward as one country to a better place. And I believe this office is front and center, on the front lines, in making that more possible. I'm asking for your vote on September 13th. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here tonight. On behalf of the New York Law Journal, the City Bar Association, I want to thank the candidates for such a lively debate and such thoughtful answers. I want to thank the audience for coming and being patient and hearing, hearing them out. And this seems completely unnecessary, but I've been asked to remind you to vote. <laughs> <laughs> Number 13. 13.